1: Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 20, The Early Neo-Assyrian Army. Last time we talked about early emergence of the Greeks. This time, we'll look at a far more advanced civilization and its army. Probably already the best army in the whole world. Joining me, as always, is Dan, the fan of history. So, Dan, what's going on with the Neo-Assyrian Empire? Wow, this army, this army is a work
2: of art. It is (laughs) It is the best army in the world, and I've been looking at this quite a bit, actually. There's no contemporary army that is even close to the early Neo-Assyrian army. But if you have heard of the Assyrian army of the empire, then you've probably heard of the late Neo-Assyrian army. And the sort of point which makes the difference is 745 BC, because something happens in 745 BC that Mm -hmm. changes the world, and it definitely changes the army. So if if this army is the best one, it still would have stood no chance against the late neo assyrian army, but that's not what we are talking about today. We are still, uh, this is the army of Ashunassipal II and Shalmaneser III, the great kings of the early Neo-Assyrian Empire. And um, we have to think about how we know what we know about this army because everything we know comes from the Assyrians. So it's propaganda and um, <laughs> we have a hard time filtering it, but they did win some amazing victories and that we know. Also Ashurnasirpal II especially had a habit of Right, or painting stone things carving into stone this army showing the army
1: he was quite proud uh, of it like to show it yes. off to his friends
2: <laughs> yeah and i've talked about that before but this whole uh, part of the british museum with only asher ii it has great depictions of his army the strange thing with these depictions then is that the army uh, is never really uh, fighting an open-field battle, but we'll talk more about that
1: soon. Hmm. So, what were the things that made this army so much different than all the armies of the past? I mean, we've seen large armies before, so it can't be just size.
2: No, it's definitely not size, and I think, uh, comparing to, for example, Joe China, this army is tiny. But I still think that uh, the Assyrian army would kick the ass of the Chinese army <laughs> at this time. And the first thing with this army is that they have 2,000 years of indoctrination. They The Assyrians have been warriors for a very, very long time, and they have a very strong warrior ethos. But now they have iron weapons as well. They have access to great iron deposits, which, for example, Egypt does not have at this time. And they have also this 2,000 years of military discipline, pretty much. Everybody knows how to act as a soldier, and everybody expects to be a soldier. All adult males are soldiers, and have spent some time fighting. We'll look at five parts of this army, or five different things about this army. First we'll look at the recruitment process, then we'll look at the weapons and the troops. We'll look at what they did in open battle, to be so amazing. We right. look at sieges and we look at the infrastructure of the army.
1: All right. So I guess this, since we're going to first talk about recruitment, you know, we always have, we have, I don't know, here in the United States, we have recruitment videos on TV all the time. So how did this, how did this happen back then?
2: Well, um, everybody was Everybody wanted to be a warrior, and everybody was, in some sense, a warrior. Uh, religion of course is very strong in all ancient societies, and here the religion is war. Asher is the god of war. Your duty is to serve Asher, and Asher demands yearly campaigns, so the Assyrian army has to go out and beat somebody up, as I've said many times, right. every year. and. The priesthood are warriors, and the king is the head priest of the church of Ashur. So it, it's sort of you're indoctrinated from all directions to become <laughs> this crazy warrior.
1: It's more um, of a top down approach <laughs> to yeah, recruitment.
2: And they, it's also possible, whatever recruitment happens is actually to become an Assyrian. So, if you try to become an Assyrian, you are allowed to become an Assyrian. If you obey the Assyrian law, you obey the Abirian, uh, Assyrian king, you serve Asher, then you are allowed to become an Assyrian. So they, they swell the ranks with new peoples, especially Arameans at t- this time, too. And in the spring, when the army gathers, everybody's there and they say, Hey, pick me, pick me, I want to go on the yearly campaign. But logistics then says that, oh, we can't take too many people, so everybody wants to be part of this divine army that is about to deal out Asher's punishment to the world every single year. Wow. I can just imagine the scenes in the capital when this (laughs) happens.
1: Yeah, just everybody clamoring, arms raised, pick me, pick me.
2: There are a lot of uh, uh, facts about the, the uh, uh, size of the units in the army setup but they are all only confirmed in the late army. Oh. So I'm going to skip
1: that part for the early army because they are not certain. Okay. Do you know how. Do you know how big the army was, the first one or the well, we are now only 17 years,
2: 17 years in our narrative from the greatest battle of all time, the Battle of Karkar right. in 853 BC. And there the Assyrian army claims 120,000 men under Shalmaneser III. And that's Assyrian propaganda. And you probably have to cut that in half or even more. <laughs> uh, I think most historians think that Shalmaneser had 50,000 men. And fifty thousand is a figure that uh, comes back often. So I think the, the operative size of the army was fifty thousand when they left the capital and sort of set out on this this plundering campaign.
1: Right, because there had to be, you know, we talk about logistics. It's not just you know troops. They, they had to be followed by all kinds of food and water yes. and everything else. Just moving that stuff. I mean, you're gonna. It, the, the undertaking is incredible. It is, and you have to wonder what would happen if the Assyrian heartland was threatened,
2: so that you didn't have to or do these long marches and oh, wow. supply yeah. the army, and then, then you could probably muster at least at least five times,
1: maybe ten times as many Assyrians. Yeah, they would all they would all come out, you know, en masse. Yeah. And, <laughs>
2: That's why the Assyrian heartland is very seldom threatened. And when it's threatened, it's usually because the Assyrians have
1: done something wrong or there are Assyrians threatening the heartland. Mm, That's intriguing. So what were, so what else was going on? Like what kind of weapons, like what kind of troops were they putting together? Well, they do have
2: archers, cavalry, chariotry, infantry, slingers, and siege experts but the core of the assyrian army is archers so the main weapon is the bow
1: mm-hmm. it's
2: a composite bow i think it's influenced by the people of the steppes uh, the assyrians are great archers and they're like almost all the soldiers have a bow that's like a constant rain of arrows in the middle of the enemy forces is wow. is the seems to be the, the first thing they do and they also are very keen to carry around huge shields. Um, so, archers, the guys that are really good archers, often have a shield bearer that stops other arrows hitting the archer.
1: <laughs> that's, that's handy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, what, and, uh, oh, was, oh, okay, continue, sorry. And
2: as we talked about just a couple of episodes ago, the Assyrians invented cavalry. Right. And that's probably under Chukulti Ninurta. And that probably happened in terrains where chariots didn't work. Uh, cavalry was known on the steppes. And there is an, uh, a claim that cavalry actually was invented a bit to the north. But, uh, yeah, uh, we won't discuss that here. We maybe will discuss that <laughs> later, actually, because okay. it's uh, another kingdom that is coming up pretty soon. Uh, and all the cavalry soldiers were archers, so there were no lancers, there were no heavy cavalry, they were just shooting arrows. Wow. And this is mainly then because it's extremely hard to ride without a saddle and stirrups.
1: Yes, I can confirm this. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried? Oh yeah, it's I, I, I feel like a, a baby on a horse <laughs> without a saddle or stirrups. So what do you do? You just uh, cling to the
2: horse with your thighs and hope for the best.
1: Yeah, kinda. I mean, you can, you kind of lean into it once the horse. If you if you know your horse, it's a lot easier. But yeah, you gotta really your leg muscles. You, You're my my. When I did it last, it's been a long time. But like even just riding around the paddock or just out in the field, um, you can hold on to the the mane somewhat. They don't you know, as long as you're not constantly tugging on it, just to balance yourself. But um yeah, my legs were like jelly afterwards, and, th- and that was only a few minutes ride. So yeah, it's 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 hard. Real hard.
2: I think I might be going out to Limber, but I think the the archers did Almost almost do like what the Huns did. Like they grew up in the saddle and they spent a lot of time riding, so they became really accustomed to this.
1: Oh, I'm sure. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that, uh, if you do that your whole life, I can see it. It would work.
2: But, but. obviously they cannot have done that yet because they just invented cavalry. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the very early cavalry also had these weird two-man teams that one guy was shooting arrows and the other guy was controlling both horses. So they were riding next to each other. Um, the guy next to you had your reins while you were shooting your bow.
1: Yeah, which That's is a, strange. Yeah, I mean, as long as you have reins, you're 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 better off. But um, yeah, like I said, it's just gonna be hard—real hard. Real hard. <laughs>
2: There were also these war chariots, and of course the the war chariots were probably the birthing place of the uh, cavalry. But I've listened a lot to uh, other podcasts about ancient warfare. There is a podcast called Ancient Warfare from Ancient Warfare magazine that's actually super interesting. If you're interested in battle details, and they are very skeptical if chariots were ever a big factor on the battlefield because chariots, when, when they tried to reconstruct chariot warfare mm-hmm. it, it seems so extremely inefficient so they are almost on the line that chariotry was ceremonial mm-hmm. that you had to show up in these chariots and you could fire arrows from them but these chariot charges and so, they were so easy to stop
1: Yeah, especially over that terrain they're, yep. they're, they're not going over a parking lot or a highway this is just rough rough terrain I, I just can't imagine with no suspension no yeah, it's, it seems crazy oh, yeah
2: but it seems that the Assyrians used their territory for archery as everything else and for reconnaissance sure. and for communication and uh, that it wasn't involved in actual fighting but aspal the second himself actually introduced the very heavy four-horse chariots for some reason, and it's very unclear what he wanted to do
1: with those. Show off.
2: And maybe <laughs> just shoot more arrows. <laughs> <laughs> I, of course, arrows and bows are expensive, so you have all have to also have slingers. So there there were slingers as well.
1: Uh, just throwing rocks from a leather strap.
2: Yep. Yeah, that's cheap, at least.
1: Yeah. I've met some people who can actually hit squirrels and stuff with a sling, and That's um, it is. I, I would I would use a, uh, a slingshot. You know the ones that you kind of strap to your arm and pull back. Yes. And I got pretty good, but I knew some. These are some um, relatives. You know, deep woods relatives who live in Louisiana. Um, yeah, they could they could sling and hit a squirrel out of a tree. It's ridiculous. Wow! Yeah. So, and then, like, sometimes they just be knocked out, so you kind of have to go over there and pop them real quick when they hit the ground. (laughs) (laughs) All right.
2: We have very few slingers here. Um, There are auxiliary forces in the Assyrian army, and I've tried to find out when they were introduced and how they were recruited and stuff. and it becomes clear later, but for this early army, I'm not sure. But I think the Assyrians did exactly what the Romans and Persians did. And actually, the Persians and Romans got their ideas from here. That you, if you saw that, uh, con-
0: hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Midmobile. We like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot.
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
2: People was very proficient at fighting in a certain way. You would less let them fight with their own stuff and not try to assimilate them into the Assyrian style of fighting. And when you see non-Assyrians on the battlefield, they are uh, not cavalry. So the Assyrians reserve cavalry for themselves. Okay. Then the Assyrians Assyrians also have swords. These are often bronze swords, and bronze is much more expensive than iron. That's sort of one of the edges of iron, why why we talk about the Iron Age, because iron is cheap once you know what to do with it. But they carry around bronze swords still. And they mostly used them for executions. Sort of when they had to flay people and cut off their heads and hands and stuff, as we talked about before. They often use their swords. And this is probably just a status symbol. Ah, so don't intend to fight with the sword.
1: Okay. What about the uh what about the gropos, the ground pounders? Yeah, this is
2: kind of weird because we know that the, the melee infantry, the the ground troops, they, they have huge shields, they have spears, they probably fight in phalanx-like formations. But the infantry is very rarely depicted. And when they are depicted, they are often just hanging around in a siege. So they're like blocking something or walking close to or guarding some siege equipment or something. Okay. But we don't really know much about them because it's all uh, archers and uh, siege machinery and cool stuff. Yeah, <laughs> right. And
1: infantry is boring. Right, all the fun stuff gets depicted. Yes. Infantry just says, get out. (laughs) And that leads to the big question
2: then. In an open field battle, which the Assyrians fought many open field battles, and they had a, a huge success rate in these open field battles, what did they actually do? What was their tactics? What were their formations? Right. And we don't know anything They never told us, they never depict open warfare, open battles, and they don't talk about them. It's like, there was a battle, we won, and then they make pictures of massacres and perhaps of a siege and uh, people paying tribute, but the battle itself is never pictured.
1: Do you think that's on purpose, like they're not giving away their tactics?
2: I think so, because they keep doing it that way until the very end of the empire. So the late army is also never depicted fighting. And there's actually only one uh, one story of a battle. And that story is so unreal. So it's just propaganda. And we'll talk about that in the late 8th century BC. Okay. When the Assyrians actually tell us what happened in a battle. And uh, yeah, it's like uh, a really bad Hollywood movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny but they don't say anything about it here. But one thing they will talk about all the time is siege warfare. Okay. So this is where the Assyrian army really shines. This is what they're absolutely best at. And they they have a plan. They have a five-step plan.
1: Alright. Let's follow this five-step plan.
2: (laughs) Yes. And it, it often works. There are times when they fail. But it's not very often. And you don't want to be the victim of an Assyrian siege. So, here's the plan. Step one, approach the enemy city.
1: Step Sounds two, good.
2: <laughs> offer surrender. Offer the chance to surrender.
1: That's kind and of it.
2: <laughs> yes, and this is a very... Remember, the Assyrian army, when they go on these yearly campaigns, they can't be paid off. The, the, the religious campaigns are robber campaigns. So you right. have all okay. the option of paying them. And swearing loyalty to Asher and um, paying tribute. But you have to pay every year. Or otherwise you go to the top of the list of targets for the yearly campaign. (laughs) And you want to stay off the top 10 on the list. Right. (laughs) It's
1: not a top 10 you want to be on.
2: (laughs) So a very good option at this point is to surrender. Sure. And uh, there are... uh, Of course, the Assyrians probably wouldn't tell us if they did this, but if you surrender and if you pay their tribute, and the tribute is way too expensive, it's way too steep. Oh, I'm sure. If you pay at this point, you are safe. And you actually have the right to some Assyrian protection as people who mess with you after you pay tribute, they go on on the top 10 list of targets.
1: Really? Yes. Well, that's handy.
2: So, there is some, you have to pay for protection, but you actually get some protection. And we'll talk about more of, about that in this century because there are some spectacular instances when the Syrians actually come to rescue their, their vassals. Gotcha. We are now at step three, and now things get uncomfortable because uh, if you decide not to surrender and uh, you say, oh, come on, beseech us, we are not scared. Then, the Assyrians will get all the people who live outside your city, in the villages and nearby, your relatives from the countryside, and they will massacre them in front of your city! And build pillars of heads and stuff, just like Ashton likes to do.
1: Yeah, that dude's weird.
2: Yes, so you're sitting there in your city and your relatives are getting massacred, and then you reach step four, you get another chance to surrender. Wow. And if you don't take that, we are at step 5, which is the siege itself. But they, the Assyrians are reluctant to go into this siege mode. So And they are often very successful in avoiding it with these steps. <laughs> so their number one goal is always to get the tribute. Right. Because it's easier to run around to 10 places and get tribute every year instead of just going to one and fighting.
1: Yeah, the expenditure, your your ROI for tribute after a siege seems very, very low.
2: Yeah. And it's it's easy to forget, but as much as they're warrior people, the Assyrians are traders. And they have economy in in on their minds all the time. So they, they are willing to um, yeah, they're they're willing to let go of the fighting in if they earn a lot of money doing it.
1: Seems very pragmatic of them.
2: (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) Um, When we get to the actual siege, we we can't go into detail about this because this podcast (laughs) will be extremely long. But we will do it on the best documented Assyrian siege, which is the siege of Lachish in the late 8th century BC. And also here, a lot of the data comes from the late army which okay. is much more advanced than this early army. Gotcha. But we will see a very successful siege in Lachish. This is in Israel, or in Judah more precisely. Okay. And this is uh, also a great archaeological dig. So a lot of the Assyrian account has been confirmed through archaeology at Lachish. And gotcha. it is the end of the city of Lachish, so you can figure out how it goes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they made it to step five.
2: Uh, yuck. <laughs> but the Assyrians are really, really good at this siege warfare and they have a lot of tricks in their bag. I we'll talk more about that in the Siege of Lachish.
1: Okay.
2: Um, yeah, I have another example of an atrocity here. Uh-oh. Uh, I don't think we have, uh, maybe we should skip this, uh, refer to the Lord of Massacres episode. It's the same guy, it's Ashan Rasipal II again, oh, doing okay. another massacre.
1: Right. Um, Doing terrible things to people.
2: Yeah, just one line here i like to quote. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like red wool. <laughs> uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> That's a new one. Yeah. Okay, on to infrastructure. Okay, infrastructure. A bit more peaceful. Uh, I think I mentioned this quite early, but the Assyrians are building supply depots. And they also took, they found the old depots of the Middle Assyrian Empire, and they uh, repair them and put them into use again. okay. So they are like uh, stashes of weapons and food uh, in all directions from the capital, so no matter what direction you decide to go to war in you will find supplies.
1: Do you know if they found any of these like today? Yes,
2: yes, definitely. there are um, they've found huge stashes of weapons, iron weapons. Uh, At several times, actually, so yeah, it's it's quite well documented.
1: Wow, that's cool.
2: And the local governors, um, (coughs) Ashurnasipal, we are still in the age of Ashurnasipal, and he was strict with having eunuchs as governors, Mm -hmm. so they didn't establish dynasties. Right. But uh, later Assyrian kings will get a bit sloppy on this part, and it will come back to bite them. Of course, it does. There are twelve provinces at this point. And each governor is forced to supply the army, if the army goes through the region. So it's, it's the number one duty of the governor to supply the army. So it's extremely devastating for a province when the army actually chooses to go through it. So when, for example, if, if they're fighting five years in a row in Syria, the provinces on the way to Syria, they are not happy.
1: Oh, I can imagine. They're gonna lose all their resources.
2: Yes. And also then, if you took step uh, 2 or 4 in the siege plan, and actually surrendered, then if the Assyrians are passing through your area, you're also forced to supply the army. (laughs) (laughs) So you better not have another enemy behind you, (laughs) that the Assyrians want to get to.
1: There
2: seems to have been camels involved here already. I just have a small note about that. But the Assyrians are very well aware of camels. Hmm.
1: And I they- guess they would have traded up from the Medi- you know, from the other side of the Mediterranean for them. So.
2: Yeah, uh, they, they get them from the Arab Peninsula. Cool. And that's that's not too far away. Okay. We'll talk a lot more about the Arabs in uh, the 8th century BC. Uh, so, a little word about this, uh, this later army. No, we don't, won't talk about the later army. Um, but, <laughs> um, I want to talk about the Battle of Kharkar. That's what I want to talk about. Okay. In 853 BC, uh, all this, all these massacres, all this tribute has reached a boiling point. And there is an alliance of 12 nations that stand up to Assyria. And, and Shalmaneser III brings the Royal Assyrian Army to battle against this big alliance of enemy states. And this will result in the biggest battle in history up to that point. Wow. We'll spend a whole episode discussing Battle <clears throat> Car.
1: Okay. Well, I guess that's going to bring us to the end. Of this episode. Um, the next episode, we're going to see what Ashurnapal II, the Lord of Massacres, can do with this giant army of his.
2: Yeah, and he has quite some experience in using it already. So uh, where will he go? What will he do?
1: <laughs> we'll find out. Yep. Please, please visit our YouTube. YouTube. Slash fan of history. Also subscribe and like and share. It really helps us out. Um, give us a review on iTunes. That also helps us out. Um, you yeah, have Facebook slash fan of history and at Twitter, the fan of history. Also the webpage, the fan And a little word about the
2: uh, Patreon. Because uh, right now we are going to go until 701 BC. Okay. Uh, that's the plan. And we need your help to go further. Because the 7th century is very interesting. And the Empire falls in 612 BC. And I would love to talk about that. Because that is a fantastic event in itself.
1: That would But be in cool. order to
2: do that, we need your help. So please go to patreon.com slash fanofhistory. And uh, if you like it, um, contribute.
1: Again, it would really help us. And we want to thank you for listening.
2: I, I have some few more oh. things to mention, actually. Yes. Just some stuff from the YouTube channel. Uh, we are doing this timeline of world history with even ancient history, more ancient history. <laughs> uh, it's actually starting at 200,000 BC. So that's wow. available on the YouTube channel. And I've also started a series about uh, Adolf Hitler and the many, the 42 attempts, at least, to kill him due, before and during the Second World War. And this guy just will never die. So check that out.
1: Yeah, the Hitler Must Die episodes.
2: Yeah, I, I considered a new name for it, but yeah, it, the original name is Adolf Hitler Must Die. And we talk about an incident in the first episode in World War One where he had a pretty good chance of dying and somebody chose not to kill him. Uh, I know that story. Yeah. <laughs> and too, if you check out our YouTube. All right, okay, moving on. Okay.
1: Well, for the fan of history, I am Brennan. I'm Dan. And we thank you for listening. Bye bye.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hold up!